Welcome to Earth, a love story, written and read by Robin Lassiter. Chapter 1 Fate leads the willing and drags along the reluctant. Lucius Seneca The paralysis is back, and the out-of-body experiences and the voices and the questions. Part of me's excited, but there's the fear too, like there always is and this time feels different. This isn't their normal MO. They tend to show up in the middle of pretty intense times in my life, and my life has finally settled down. I'm sober, stable. I've pulled myself out of the muck and started over again, again. Job, boyfriend, health, happiness, check. My internal sin eater, that formidable part of my psyche, honed and deadly, whose singular purpose is to drive my evolution by executing my former life and feeding on its carcass, is sated, sleeping. She is wrapped around my feet, purring a deep, gravelly purr. I'm very careful not to wake her. For the first time in a long time, she is an avenue of last resort, and I'm focused instead on the minutia of building a quiet, peaceful life. I mean, it's been a couple years since I've even had a profound dream. So what gives? As usual, there are no answers to my questions and no time to acclimate. The experiences start up again and I snap to attention. The buzzing, golden, electric, white vibrations that shake my consciousness loose from the material world are back. My body is once again surrendered, limp, suspended inside of this sonorous light. My awareness, clear and present and unencumbered, is floating just above, and above that, a collective of voices, clear as day. You have to come higher, we can't go that low. I respond by intensifying the vibration around me. I didn't know I knew how to do that, and the levitation feeling ramps up even higher and the golden light becomes brighter and whiter, blinding and overwhelming not just my sight but all of my physical senses. The light and vibration magnify and intensify until I can't survive any more of it and I have the sense I've reached some sort of boundary. I'm as high as I can go and here there is only that familiar white and gold light and my consciousness free of the constraints of my physical body. There are no other spoken words just information passed through the field we are all in. It is a joyful reunion, a welcoming, celebratory homecoming, a return to beloved family after a long journey. They are happy to be in that space with me again, and I am happy to be there with them. We resonate here together for a while. Eventually our communication fades and with it my awareness. I don't fall into the blackness of sleep, but instead dissolve upwards into the bliss of the surrounding light. I lose my sense of individuated self, and with relief, merge with something much bigger, much kinder, and much more real than my own smallness. I am small here, but not unworthy or less than this place or this bigness. I am a part of an endless ocean a salty, misty molecule thrown into the air for a moment by a whale's exhale. 
and now I return back to the sea, merging into the thing that is me and that I am. This reintegration is a profound gift and the perfect antidote to my suspicion around their return. I am simultaneously put at ease and activated. I'm alert and ready. In the weeks that follow, I spend my mornings lingering in bed because these events often happen when I've woken up early to meditate and then fall back to sleep. The dark Colorado winter mornings make it easy to sleep in. Jupiter gets up and goes to work early, and I slide over to his side of the bed and sleep on his pillow to hold on to the warmth of us a little longer. I don't want to get up anyway, and I'm hoping to somehow induce the weird falling down and up paralysis that seems to facilitate these exchanges. I don't know how to initiate any of this, though, so I'm just broadcasting a signal that I want more. I want communication. I want connection to that magical place, to its specialness, to its ability to help me escape from the real world that I've never been very good at. Time passes, the beings don't return, and in their absence I have a growing sense of pressure and unease. The feeling consumes me and their lack of communication fosters a longing, a deep calling and disquiet. I get depressed and totally focused on waiting for the next dream, the next bout of paralysis, the next sense of contact, waiting to get some sort of sign as to where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm so afraid that in order to do whatever it is, I'll have to devour my life again and start over. For the first time ever, I don't want to. I love my life. Right in the middle of all this building pressure, two things happen. One, I break my ankle in three places, stepping wrong off a rock ledge while hunting for pinion nuts with my sister and her husband and my niece and my boyfriend, Jupiter. We are visiting my parents in their little valley in southern Colorado. It's a glorious blue sky day and there's been a drought so the snow is sparse and it feels more like early spring than December. We didn't intend to find the trees full of pinion nuts but there they were. They don't show up every year and that makes them special, so we abandoned our hike to the top of the ridge and instead settled into the hillside, each working at different levels, pushing away crunchy curled oak leaves to find singular dark brown intact shells on the ground or reaching into the dense green needles to wiggle loose, bursting full pine cones and pry out a dozen nuts in one go. Since the last time I broke my ankle, a full three years prior, I've been going slow down big steps, sideways, watching carefully where I place my feet. But for some reason today I think to myself, it's been long enough, I'm strong, I'm safe. And then I step down off a sandstone shelf and hear a pop and feel that sickening drop and I'm down. We're less than a half mile from the house, but it takes over an hour to hobble back. Me slung between my sister and her husband, crutching one-legged down pine needle slick paths. And when I peel off my boot and sock, I have an egg-shaped swelling just above my right ankle bone, exactly in the same place I'd broken it before. I can't help but wonder if there's something to that, if it's somehow related to their return, to the return of the buzzing light and communication, considering how I broke it the first time. They were there then, in that dark, haunted hallway, 
in my dark haunted life, cradling my fall, snapping my ankle, and ultimately rescuing me from myself. The second thing that happens is now hold up in my second floor apartment with my driving ankle broken and nothing else to focus on. I schedule a between life soul regression with a well-known regression therapist. A between life regression is where you're supposed to meet your guides and do a life review and learn about your karma and your dharma and what you're working on, who your soul family is and what you're doing here this time in this life. A friend of mine had visited this hypnotherapist and thought she could help, and I didn't know where else to look for answers. We scheduled the session, an intimidating five hours for March. While I'm waiting for March, I'm laid up, homebound, hobbling from the bathroom to the kitchen to the couch, feeling depressed and anxious. I'm alone a lot. I've been working from home for the past few years, so there's still that, but otherwise it's a lot of open time, thinking, and struggling with the feeling that I'm losing ground. I should be active, busy, productive, and I just can't right now. Weeks pass and I'm able to bear some weight now and just about to be released so I can start driving again. I'm ready to re-emerge into the world after 12 weeks of being isolated and stuck, and I'm excited for the regression, for my exit from the small apartment, for things to get back to normal. And then, a pandemic hits. I'm sure you can relate. The session is rescheduled once, and then again, and then again. My ankle continues to heal slowly, and now I'm having a few powerful dreams and out-of-body experiences, leaving my body at night to walk around the apartment in that familiar, gray, in-between world. And while my sense of urgency around doing or being something I wasn't doing or being grows, it's hard to parse out what's what, because 2020, you remember. Finally, after several reschedules and months of anticipation, and the world being totally changed, I didn't even know how to feel about the session anymore. I'd never had a regression, never been hypnotized, I didn't know what to expect. I was pretty afraid to be outside of my own control. It sounded scary. I wasn't even sure if I could be hypnotized. But since I hadn't figured all of this out on my own yet, in May, I made the four-hour drive to Boulder. Linda is in her mid-60s, I'd guess, blessedly down-to-earth with wavy brown hair stopping just above her shoulders, and professional slacks and shoes and small earrings, and there's nary a crystal singing bowl in sight. She has 20 years of experience as a regular old therapist before she became a regression therapist, which she's done for another 20 years. I know how to be around regular old therapists, so I relax a little. Linda begins what feels and sounds like a guided meditation, helping me to relax my body and mind, and I begin to drift in that in-between space that I'm so familiar with anyway. This is the space where many of my experiences happen. It's not foreign. It's nice. I'm conscious the entire time. I always feel like myself. I don't ever feel like I can't sit up and walk out if I want to. I spend the whole session sort of astonished, which is how I tend to navigate life on this planet in general, so that's not that foreign either. Everything I experience comes from inside of me. Linda does not lead me or prompt me or create any of the images or sensations or information I experience. It's just all there, 
rich, emotional, clear. I experience a past life. I'm living in the countryside on a small farm with my husband. We have a daughter, but she isn't well. She's physically healthy, but there's something wrong with her development. My husband is resentful of her. Worse, he's disgusted by her. She's a distraction. He has no love for her and he wants my full attention. I allow him to send our daughter away. Distant family comes on a big black belching train and they take her, not bothering to conceal their contempt for me. I spend the rest of my life giving all of my energy to my husband. We do whatever he wants and he's just fine with that. Finally, I'm an old woman laying in a pile of rough blankets on a bed in a simple room with a fire dying in the fireplace beside me. I am tired and old and cold and bitter. I gave every bit of my energy to my husband and the life he wanted and the wife he wanted me to be, and I never questioned it. I was nothing. I never became the full version of who I could have been. I'm more than ready to go. I die gratefully. I move from being this woman, being inside of her, looking out through her eyes, to being above her, looking down at her lifeless body. I'm familiar with this. My consciousness has left my body before, so it's nothing terribly shocking. It's easy to leave. It's easy to die, and I'm happy to be free of that body and that life. I float up slowly into a very familiar, rich, velvety, intelligent darkness. I'm alone. Soft light enters and I notice a rainbow staircase off to my left. This seems cliche, but fine. I ascend, floating in my non-physical but still robin-shaped body. I can still feel the bitterness from the life I just left. In fact, I realize I'm not just bitter about that single life. I'm annoyed about and resentful of the whole system on that planet, with its suffering and glacially slow evolutionary process, where everything is all veiled in shadowy confusion. But as I'm floating along, irritated, I'm noticing that the staircase is actually pretty nice. The rainbow colors are vibrant, but not bright in a harsh, hurt-your-eyes kind of way. Instead, the colors are rich and deep and fluid. They are alive and in motion, and now I notice the stairs themselves are a beautiful, glittering, white, crystalline structure, and the colors are flowing over and through them. They have an energy of what I can only describe as goodness, and by the time I get to the top, much of my connection to the previous life has been replaced by a curiosity and the feeling that I'm more myself than I was. At the top of the stairs, I find myself in a space filled with lots of other people. They're moving about with intention. Everyone is calm and happy. They see me and there's a measure of greeting from them. I feel like my presence is being acknowledged, but everyone is addressing me sort of side-eyed as if they know I'm both here and not here. They glance at me and little grins cross their mouths and it feels like I'm the only one not in on a kind and gentle joke. I feel only warmth and acceptance and a subtle, sparkly excitement from them as they pass by on their way to other business. I'm drawn forward and up ahead I see a womb-like apparatus suspended from above. There's no ceiling here, I checked, 
just a mist that fades forever into itself, revealing nothing of what is beyond. I do sense that there is something up there, though, something that holds all of this together. I don't linger on that because my attention is focused on the womb that's beckoning me into it. It has a teardrop shape and is made up of shades of warm ochre and brown and seems surprisingly organic, as if it's living or connected to something that's living. It's a gentle, pulsing chamber and it calls me inside to restore myself. I go within to rest and to recover my energy after the life I just left. I still feel a shadow of the bitterness, but it's fading. I'm both inside the womb-like space and simultaneously observing myself from the outside. My consciousness is bouncing between the two perspectives and I'm saying over and over, look, it's me, I'm me, that's me and I'm me, I'm me and that's me. Linda finally interjects, yes, I understand. And I stop bouncing back and forth and settle into the warm womb and just soak up the healing feelings for a few moments. I don't stay long though. I'm curious, drawn forward, pulled into the next thing for me to see, which is a big group of people sitting cross-legged and engaged with a communal task. They are shiny and happy, distinctly earthly and beautiful with warm skin and twinkling eyes and wide smiles, and they're all arranged in a big circle. They're familiar, my friends, my group who I work and play with, I have a sense here that I'm actually a teacher, a leader of this group, but that feels grandiose, so I push it aside. There are about 40 of them, and when they see me, they wave and smile and holler out their hellos and then turn back to their task. They are throwing around a ball of energy that they created, making it larger, brighter, and then smaller, more dense. I'm leaning closer to get a better look when I feel another strong pull off to my right that can't be ignored. I want to stay here and see how this creation process is going, what progress they've made, and what the ball of energy is ultimately going to become, but I'm being drawn away quite strongly. I tell Linda about the pull and tell her I think I'm supposed to go somewhere. She encourages me to follow the feeling, and suddenly I'm streaming out into space, fast into the cosmos, through galaxies, stars whizzing by, and just as quickly I'm engulfed in color and a thick, liquid density that is blue and green and purple and gorgeous and sweet. Lemuria, I say. And then another part of me says, nope, can't handle that. And my boundary is respected and I gently move on to a new place and into a whole different feeling. It is red here and orange and a deep ochre yellow and there are four beings standing in front of me. They are one unit made up of golden and white light and vibration, and I only know there are four of them because I can see the silhouette of four heads and four sets of shoulders. I can't see their faces and I am instantly terrified. I feel small and confused and suspicious and out of my depth. I'm scrutinizing these beings making absolutely no connection to my previous experiences with this light and resonance, when one of them pushes his face through the golden buzzing, and I recognize him. Oh, I say I know them. It's okay. There's love here. 
and I suddenly know that the entity who pushed his face through the light is the same being, my Ant-Man, who visited me as a child. He's not just familiar. Familiar is recognizing a face on the subway. He's family. I know him. And these beings are the four who are one. Linda asks me for a name that we can call my Ant-Man, the one who pushed his face through the light, and instantly I spell it to her. C-H-E-K-B-A. The letters tumble out of my mouth before I can even think of them, and that shocks me. I clam up. It's all happening too fast, and I become small again and suspicious. Wait a minute, I say, feeling very vulnerable and very alone. Where's my family? A bank of cartoon-like pearly white clouds instantly materializes above us with a hole in the middle. From out of the hole emerge the heads and torsos of my father, my mother, my sister, my boyfriend, and a few other close friends peering down, all waving and smiling. Okay, I think. Okay. I continue to feel small and confused, but I let the group of four draw me towards a city in the distance. We see the tall buildings, everything shaded with that same balmy red-orange-yellow hue, and then we're instantly inside the city, inside of a large square courtyard at the bottom of four sets of wide stairs. There are buildings and columns in the distance, all made from what feels like warm, cream-colored sandstone. There are beings everywhere walking purposefully across the courtyard, and in the center of the square is a low wall made of the same ochre stone. This low wall has pleasing rounded edges and is round itself. It looks like something that would contain a pool and fountain, except here, inside of the circular wall, is a large, mercurial, kaleidoscopic sphere. It is made of moving, shifting, liquid gold, reflecting its surroundings. The four who are one bring me to the sphere, and as I peer curiously into it, I remember. I remember it all. This place is a planet. It is where I incarnate most often. Everyone on the planet is a helper. Our collective purpose is to assist. We're happy with our lives. There's zero agenda and we find joy in our service. There are not dramatic fever pitches of highs and lows pulling us around, but instead we enjoy the fullness of contentment. I have a sense that while there is not the same free will here that exists on Earth, that is not considered a bad thing. We're more like a hive, a collective, all with the same purpose which is to lend our energy towards the service of others. We still have individual goals and experiences, but that exists under the umbrella of our collective role as helpers. There's an endless variety of projects to choose from, and we focus on other worlds, other realms, since ours is in pretty good shape. It feels like we've come to an equilibrium here. We have it sorted out, so we can concentrate our efforts farther afield. I remember that I looked into the sphere at some point before I came to Earth, and I chose a project. I stood right here, sorting through the different options, pushing away amoebic blobs of floating gold, which are actually fully formed blueprints of tasks. I sort of scrolled through them, 
flicking aside those that weren't interesting to me, looking for something I really wanted to work on. This is what I came across, and this is what I chose. Incarnate on Earth to assist in moving it from a paradigm of evolution through suffering to a paradigm of evolution through creation and joy. Learn to turn the wheel deliberately. Change the program from a zero-sum game to a non-zero-sum game. No big deal. Once I choose my task, the four who are one take me to a room with a big, sleek, thin platform with smooth, rounded edges and sweeping curves. It is about waist-high, made of something like solid, liquid silver. It doesn't have any legs but floats there gently and goes on and on, fading eventually into the distance. In this thin, beautiful structure is a perfectly round hole, and suspended in the center of the hole, half above and half below the platform, there's the earth. Why is the earth so important, I ask, telepathically, of course. The crown jewel, they say. I look closely and I see the earth in her entirety. A shining gem, a sapphire, shimmering and overflowing with life and unspeakable beauty. She emanates sacred brilliance. And then my view expands out and I see her in relation to other planets and galaxies and suns and solar systems and universes. I see how she's part of the whole and once she is activated into her full brilliance, she will light up a massive area. Her rise connects and initializes a grid that stretches over billions of light years in all directions. This grid used to be all lit up, but something happened. It's vitally important that we get it turned back on, and humanity has something to do with that. As beautiful as the Earth herself is, when I feel the humanity that exists there, that's when I really fall in love. Again, because I've been there before. When I feel the particular resonant frequency of the collective of humans on Earth, I forget about how hard it is to be there. I forget about the suffering in a human body, the too cold, too hot, heavy misery, the chaotic highs and lows, the confusion, the struggle. I forget what it feels like to have a broken heart. I forget what it's like to have to bear the unbearable. Instead, I remember the people, the artists, the striving, the earnestness, the emotions, the friction, the goodness, the drive, the expansion, the discovery, the love. I remember what it feels like when someone is kind for no reason other than to be kind. I remember what it feels like when someone overcomes a challenge or notices a sunrise. I remember how it feels to literally create something from nothing. I remember that this place is beloved and divine and that her inhabitants are precious. This is a deeply holy place. Here, Linda asks the four who are one the questions I'd prepared in advance. Linda, what is the meaning of the repeated sleep paralysis, the out-of-body experiences, the dreams, and all of the other weird experiences Robin has had? The four who are one, 
You keep trying to leave the planet because it's hard for you there. Once you learn how to use those techniques correctly, without trying to escape, you will be able to easily communicate with us. For now, it's you trying to bail. This is the language of my glowing golden guides. I'm trying to bail. Linda, what about Robin breaking her ankle twice and the circumstances around that? Four who are one. You want to leave. We ground you when needed. When I later relate this detail to my sister, she gasps. Those motherfuckers. Linda. Robin really wants to leave her job, but she's so torn. It feels important, but it also feels like it's time to move on. What is she supposed to do? Four who are one. You had a sole contract to bring the idea of the non-binary nature of gender and the very idea of both and rather than either or into the collective consciousness, and that contract lasted 15 years. It is done. You can stay or go. Linda. Robin struggles with her body, with what to eat. It's difficult to be exhausted all the time. How does she get more vitality? For who are one. You micromanage yourself too much. Eat meat. Take psychedelics. Let go. What the hell? I'm a vegetarian. Three years sober. Linda. Robin keeps being told in dreams that she's supposed to write a book. Is she? Here I suddenly have a coughing fit that feels like something is stuck in my throat and I'm choking. I have to sit up and drink water. Once I settle back down, Linda continues. Did that have something to do with the book? Four who are one. Your life up until now has contained everything needed to be able to move forward into the next part of your life. The space between is the book. You must open your throat. I am shown two massive rectangular blocks filling up my entire field of vision, each emanating an energy of being contained, complete, whole. There's a narrow gap in between. I understand that the book bridges the gap between these two main blocks of my life. Linda, how many times has Robin incarnated on Earth? Four who are one, eight or nine. Vague, but okay. Linda asks if there's anything else they want to tell me, and there is silence. I whimper. They're getting smaller. They're leaving. Linda assures me that this is normal when guides are done relaying information, and I watch them go in despair. Wait, I say, they're giving me a gift. They return, and something is removed from me. It's a program, maybe. A code. A collection of information. It's like a filter that sits in front of my body, a film that I exist behind. It is my fear of being seen. They're making it so that I don't care what people think of me. Linda guides me out of the trance and I sit up on the couch. I am freaked the fuck out, to put it mildly. I look at her. She looks at me. That was wild, I say. Yes, she smiles. Linda tells me, a little too matter-of-factly in my opinion, that in the last five to ten years, IP souls have been showing up in the regressions that she facilitates. An IP, or interplanetary soul, typically doesn't incarnate on Earth, but apparently they, we, 
are showing up in greater and greater numbers to assist with the evolution of consciousness on Earth during this time. It's a lot to take in. I spent the next several months trying to make space for an experience that seemed completely insane, but also felt undeniably real. I'm not really okay. My foundations are shaken and I feel badgered, haunted, pressured. Somehow none of the events, the paranormal stuff, the ghosts, the physically seeing non-human entities, finding myself in the cockpit of some unknown craft, the dreams, the OBEs, the visitors, prepare me for this. I feel unsteady, crazy. Not in that hyperactive, heightened, elevated, wide-eye way that you can feel crazy, but in the floaty, spinning, flush of fear, flop sweat, it's unbearable in my own skin kind of crazy. It's weird, but what finally comes to my rescue is not the years of meditation, the years of training my body to be quiet, the years of cultivating equanimity, focus, and stillness. No, what I lean on now are the years I spent doing a bunch of drugs. I know how to ride out a bad high, and this kind of feels like that. It's the years of managing myself when it felt like my heart would explode out of my chest, or when I drank so much that I could feel my body dying from the poison of it, and there's nothing to do but sit with it and let time pass and not freak out because that just makes it worse. It's the years of altering my consciousness with substances, subjecting myself to the event horizon of putting something in my body and waiting to see what would happen, and then bearing whatever happened for as long as it takes because what else can you do? That really saves me now. I realize I actually can't handle this. I know what's a dream, what's real, what's altered consciousness, what I can trust and what I shouldn't look at too closely, what I should hold loosely. Integration happens slowly, and eventually this all lives in the hold-on-tightly, let-go-lightly neighborhood of my psyche, and that seems okay. The regression ultimately feels like both a culmination and a call. I have always felt a heightened sense of mission, and with the two giant directives given to me by the four who are one, the relentlessness of that missioned sense of self finally has an outlet. The giant directives... First, write a book. Let it span the gap between where you were to where you will be. You are in a liminal space in your life and won't be forever. Use it. And second, here's this massive, somehow prescriptive project that you've chosen. Move from evolution through suffering to evolution through creation and joy. Zero-sum to non-zero-sum game. It's a lot. Weirdly, though, it has become an anchor for when I'm spinning and confused. It is something to hold me steady. Maybe by writing this book I can put all the pieces of my crazy life together and see it from a height, and let it mean something greater than the sum of its parts. I've spent years traveling down roads that led me nowhere except back to myself. I've doubted myself, not trusted my own lived experiences, and let that split me and drive me to my edge. I frittered away the years not solidly in either world, in any world, unable to move forward, unable to deeply exercise my own agency, unable to fully face and bear the truth. I've greased the groove of the sweep of the underworld countless times. So I do know how to move toward what I fear, 
I know how to face the shadow. I know how to rise and embrace the next thing. I have that framework and it is, once again, that thing that I use to move through all of this. For my own sanity, I decide to accept what seems insane to the rest of the world. I let this stuff in, choose to believe the mountain of evidence that these things are real. I won't keep them apart, walled off, separate, and let that separation creep around the back of my mind, sowing sedition in my subconscious. I will gather back all the little abandoned and orphaned fragments of my totality, those resilient castaways who hold the missing pieces of my bigger, unified self. Here in the unformed, liminal, in-between time, I'm making a choice because I know that not to choose is to choose. The only way forward is to invite in the paradox. My experiences are real. They are not part of consensual reality. Reality is bigger than the consensus. I've seen it. So I'll write this book. I'll do what the four who are one told me to do and tell myself about myself so that I can claim my narrative consciously. Boldly and with great faith, and because they really won't leave me the fuck alone, I accept the first part of my missive and begin to write this book. I am storytelling myself into being. For more information, visit honeyheart.org.